Hello, Malcolm here, and welcome to the first of four classes for the Thames Valley Churches of Christ on the Book of Haggai. The title of the series is The Glory Will Be Greater. The glory will be greater, and you'll see some of what that's all about as we go into the Book of Haggai. Now, first of all, there was a preview class I put up over the weekend. If you haven't already seen that, please go and have a look at that, because that gives you a bit of the background to the Book of Haggai, but more particularly as to why this is such a great book for us to study right now as the Thames Valley Churches of Christ. So have a look at that. It's short, just a few minutes long, and I think that'll benefit you. Today, we're going to do a bit of the an introduction into uh, who Haggai was and that kind of thing, and then we're going to look at chapter one. The following three classes spread over the rest of this month and next month are going to look at chapter two split into three sections. So introduction to this, uh, this book. So Haggai, who was Haggai? In verse 1 of chapter 1, he's called a prophet, and in verse 13, he's called a messenger, which incidentally is the same word used in the rest of the Old Testament for angel. So was he an angel? Haggai the angel? Maybe not. Probably just messenger, but nonetheless, from the Lord. He only had a short ministry. As far as we know from what we're looking at here in the book of Haggai, 15 weeks was his prophetic messaging ministry, which is interesting and uh, I think helps you and I to... Uh, have faith that even a short, even in a short time, God can have a really big impact and can use anyone, you or I, to have a big impact for him, even in just a few weeks. His name means festival. It seems likely that he was born at a time of one of the festivals. There are other people in the Old Testament who had the same name or a very similar name based on the same Hebrew word for festival. So he was probably called festival or my feast, actually, uh, uh, because of being born um, on a festival day. Or perhaps it's a bit like a like a nickname, like if someone was born in April and they were called April, for sake of argument. His successor was Ze- uh, Zechariah, and you may want to read that book as a bit of background also to the book of Haggai. What about the dates? I'm going to put some of these things on screen as well. Dates for Haggai. So in 538 BC, as we think of it, King Cyrus defeats Babylon and decrees that all of the exiled Israelites that have been held captive in Babylon for many decades, he says, you can go home. The captives can return home. Cyrus had a different approach to the exiles than uh, the Babylonians. These Persians had a new policy of returning deported peoples to their homeland and restoring the worship of their native gods. And this is something that's not only in the Bible, it's confirmed by what's called the Cyrus Cylinder in the British Museum, putting the picture up there. And if you ever get a chance to visit the British Museum, go and see it, because that cylinder says and confirms what the Bible teaches, is that the Israelites, or at least a large number of them, went back to Israel and to Jerusalem. Then in 536, the first Israelites returned to Jerusalem. That's covered in Ezra chapters 1 to 6. Nothing is done. 50,000 return under Zerubbabel, also known as Sheshbazar, and under Joshua the high priest, mentioned in Ezra chapter 1 and Ezra chapter 2. They were there to found the remnant back in Jerusalem and to start rebuilding the temple. However, nothing actually happened. 520, we're now, here we are in, in Haggai, 520, 15 years or so later, after this hiatus, Haggai turns up and inspires the people to begin rebuilding the temple. And it was a crisis uh, that Haggai came into. It was a crisis that didn't look like a crisis, didn't feel like a crisis, because their situation was not like the previous crises that they had experienced. The people of Israel in the past, it was crisis time if the armies were at the gates. It was a crisis time if an enemy was invading. It was crisis time if they were being carried off into exile and all their kings were being blinded and, uh, and killed. And This didn't look like a crisis. It may not be all that what they wanted it to be. It didn't look like a crisis, though. The crisis uh, Haggai identified 
was that there was a complacency in the people of God leading to inaction in areas significant to God. It led to his displeasure and it led to his dishonoring, which we will see here in chapter 1, verse 8. One aspect of leadership, and this is about families, family groups, locations, churches, any aspect of leadership. One aspect of leadership is having the spiritual discernment to know when a crisis is not a crisis. It looks and feels like one, but isn't. And when the apparent lack of a crisis actually know there is a crisis. Haggai revealed this to the people of God, and thankfully they responded. So there's good news in all this. The dates covered in the book, I'm not going to go over now, except they're on screen and in the show notes. Uh, but there are some comprehensive dates that show us, uh, or details of dates that show us that these were real dates, real things happening in real time. One other thought, as we, before we get into this main topic of rebuilding of the temple, it could be asked, why the temple? It might seem strange to see such an emphasis on building the temple when a large part of the reason that Israel went into exile in the first place was because of their over-reliance on the temple itself, the building. Here we've got God's temple. Here we are with the temple in Jerusalem. We are in undefeatable. We are, uh, we are safe. We, we don't have to worry about anything. They relied too much on the temple being present, a, a building actually there. So why, why then would Haggai insist on the rebuilding of the temple? So we'll get more into that in the book. But what I would say at this point is the, the, temp, the reason for the rebuilding of the temple that Haggai is dealing with here is not so that they can have a building and feel safe. It's so that they can, they can worship God in the way that God wants to be worshipped and knows it's healthy for them to worship him. The kind of worship that's encapsulated in something like Psalm 27 and verse 4. One thing I ask of the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and seek him in his temple. In other words, it's about enabling a more intimate relationship with God's people, not about having a building. That's what God wants. It's not about the building as such, but Haggai knows, or God knows, and Haggai reveals, and if they don't get on with building the temple, they're not showing that they have a seriousness about them in their relationship with God. So that's some of the background here. And uh, now, actually, let me just read the chapter for us, and it'll be helpful if you read it ahead of time, but let me just read through chapter one, and then we'll touch on a few points that come out from uh, these verses. In the second year of Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, uh, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Josedach, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your panelled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but harvested little. You, have, uh, you eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but you are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that, so that I may take pleasure in it and be honoured, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with your own house. Therefore, because of you, 
The heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the olive oil, and everything else the ground produces, on people and livestock, and on all the labor of your hands. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Jozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. They came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month. What an amazing chapter. We've still got chapter two to go here, but uh, what, a, what an amazing set of circumstances and what an amazing man Haggai must have been. Love to have a chat with him in the next life. But let's talk about some things that come out from this and then I have a few questions at the end for discussion and reflection as a family, a family group, a location, or however you want to use uh, this material. So the setting, uh, we're given the date, the time, the people. It's a specific time and place in history. All sectors of society are involved. We've got the secular governor, we've got the high priest, we've got Haggai and all the people. It's everybody involved right here. And Haggai comes to speak the truth in the love of God without fear. His message may not have been well received, not necessarily popular, but he speaks God, God's word with courage and faith. And we need to do that, don't we, from time to time. And then the Lord speaks. The Lord Almighty says in verse uh, 2, these people say, the Lord Almighty, the Lord of hosts. Uh, the hosts could be interpreted as angels, the Lord of all the angels, the Lord of the stars, the Lord perhaps of the armies of Israel. The point is, uh, he's the Lord of uh, the powers and the strength that are greater than the armies of Darius, who they feared in the past. And this phrase, the Lord Almighty, is used 14 times in these two chapters, two short chapters, uh, 14 times, which I'll put the references in the show notes there. It's an emphasis. The Lord is speaking. So what does the Lord Almighty say? Well, he says, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. The time has not yet come. You notice he says, these people, not my people. What's God doing here? God's distancing himself and asking them to take a good, hard look at themselves. There are times for us all to do that. He's not saying you people. He's not saying my people. He's saying these people, and there's a sense there of, okay, oh, I better be, we better be thinking about what's going on here. The time has not yet come. They say the time has not yet come, but have they inquired as to what God's timing may be? Don't we have to think about that? There are times when I sense God calling me to something, to, to take an action for him. I think, oh, maybe it's not the right time, but maybe it's not my time, but maybe it's his time. Is it time to open your mouth and share your faith with somebody? Is it time to start a new location, a new family group? Is it time to start something new in your neighborhood? Is it time to take part in the AIM program? Please do. I'm sure you'll love it. We can say, oh, it's not the right time, but when is the right time? When will it ever be the right time to start some of these things? We need to pray and ask God for discernment about his timing, not our own. They are confident in their own assessment of God's of, of timing, but God is not in the picture of their reasoning, their thinking, and their planning. Is it time for yourselves to be living in your paneled houses, verse 4, while this house remains a ruin? Is it a time? A little bit of sarcasm here from God, perhaps. In other words, as Ray Stedman said, in other words, God says, is the problem really that you think it's not yet time for me to work? 
Well, it's amazing that you think it is time for me to work in helping you build your house. How about mine? They're panelled houses. By the way, that may not be luxury. Sometimes it's preached that that's a luxury. Maybe, but the word can also mean roofed. So it could just be, your houses have roofs. What about mine, says God? And bear in mind, Jerusalem's not a big city. So when when it's, uh, this house remains a ruin, this it might be Haggai pointing to the temple. And they all know where it is, even if they're not right by it. Perhaps it was within uh, sight of where Haggai was saying this. You know, my house, as in this house, as in the temple, look, can you see? It has no roof. Your house, does it have a roof? Yeah, my house has a roof. Does your house have a roof? Yeah, does your house have, does anybody's house here not have a roof? No, all of our houses have got roofs. What about this house? So there may be a little bit of almost humor here uh, going on. Uh, they all knew what he was talking about. And it's a ruin, he says. It remains a ruin. They knew that ruin. They walked past it regularly. It was visible. It was known. And yet they discounted it as their priority. It, perhaps Haggai's perspective here is what's called eschatological. In other words, thinking about the, the end times, the messianic times. And if so, what he's maybe saying to them is, if you rebuild this temple, it's going to speed up the coming of the Messiah. And by not prioritizing the rebuilding of the temple, what you're essentially saying is we prefer the pre-Messianic age. We'd rather stick around now without the Messiah. Is that really what you want? And maybe they haven't thought about it quite, quite as concretely as that, but that's effectively what's happening. And I wonder for us sometimes, we want the kingdom to come, right? We pray that prayer that Jesus gave us, your kingdom come, your will be done. But for the kingdom to come to where we live and where we work and in our families and for God's will to be done there, we need to take some actions of courage and faith to build things for God. Now, it's God's stuff. It's God's strength that builds it. But he works through human beings. We'll talk more about that in just a minute. And I wonder whether we're just delaying. Are we saying, well, I'd rather the kingdom didn't come right now in my family. I don't think I want the kingdom to come into my neighborhood. I don't think I want the kingdom to come into my school, my university, my workplace, because it would be a bit messy and a bit difficult, a bit hard work and a bit, well, it might complicate my life. And yet we still pray that Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done. Do we mean it? And what Haggai is doing is something a bit similar here. He's challenging them to say, well, what do you want? Do you want God working here? He might mess with things for you, but isn't that what we really, really want? So one thing we should perhaps ask ourselves is what's incomplete in our ministry, in our location, in our family group, or in the ministry that God has given you? We're all in the ministry. We have a ministry. We have a way of serving God and, and living the kingdom uh, to the people uh, around us. What's incomplete at this point? And is there anything getting in the way of you completing that task, that ministry that, that God has given you. Remember, Jesus was not upset with the Pharisees because they were too righteous, but because they were missing the point. And it's the main point. They did sometimes what was good instead of what was best. And one of the challenges for the Christian, and I face it myself so much, is focusing on and doing good, and it's good to do good, but miss what's best, completing the work that God has given for me to do. So Haggai's, Haggai's call here is really a call to soberness. And that's what happens in verse 5 down to verse 11, when he talks about the crops failing, that they have purses with holes in, um, they expected this, and then this actually is what happened. He says, give careful thought, or you could translate it set to heart. That's used five times in the book of Haggai. It's an exhortation to think, the heart here being the seat of the intellect or the volition for Hebrew people. It reminds me of when Jesus said in Revelation 2 and Mark 4, he who has ears to hear. You know, listen carefully to what Jesus is saying. Listen carefully to God's word. We don't just do classes like this or hear, listen to sermons because they entertain us or because we kind of say, yes, I can tick all these things and agree with them. But I, I want to allow God's word to help me to think soberly about my life. 
God is asking them to assess their situation. He doesn't comment on why all those conditions exactly are existing. He just says, have you thought about why this is happening? Have you thought about why you're not getting what you expected? Are you, have you thought about why you work so hard but don't see a return? Were they confused? Because what they thought God had promised is not, had not occurred. In Isaiah 35, God promised the desert would be flowering when, time, when they go back to uh, out of exile, but their crops were failing. Did they assume incorrectly that God was not with them while missing the point that they had missed the point of their return, which was to please and honor God, specifically by rebuilding the temple, but more importantly, by having a strong heart for him. They're given the motivation for acting when he says, do this so that in verse 8, I may take pleasure in it and be honored. Giving God pleasure is a strong motivation, or as it should be. If we love someone, we desire them to experience pleasure, don't we? And he deserves to be honored. I had a personal spiritual retreat back in July, and one of the things that God spoke to me about was to not overcomplicate my Christian life. And in reading and studying the book of Haggai on, Haggai on my retreat, this is what came to me is, can I not just, in, in my major decisions of life, just decide how can I give God pleasure and honor him? How will these decisions honor him and bring him pleasure? And you know, when we keep it as simple as that, a lot of other things become a lot simpler and clearer. They have prevented God from experiencing pleasure and receiving honor. That's not a good place to be. What channels do you have for giving God pleasure? 2 Corinthians 5.9. We make it our goal to please him, whether we're at home in the body or away from it. Or Colossians chapter 1 verse 10. So that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. What good works could you complete? and honor him and uh, please uh, God. What channels do you have? He tells them to go into the mountains to bring down timber, into the mountains. Perhaps that's a place they don't want to go. Could be difficult terrain, could be hot, could be dangerous animals there, could be bandits. Perhaps they don't feel secure as they do in Jerusalem. Could they have justified their reluctance because of the history of idol worship in the mountains? But that's where the materials were to build God's temple. Church building is hard work. And I know the church and the temple aren't exactly the same, but it's still, we do build the church in some ways, like they built the temple. And it is hard work. And I think this is a, something for us all to wrestle with. Nothing great for God gets built without sacrifice, whether it's uh, within your physical family, within your location, your family group, your relationships, with whatever you have uh, around you. It, it does take hard work and it does take going to places you don't want to go places you may be afraid to go, places that will cost something in time and money and effort and emotional energy and spiritual energy. God is with us. And I think this is what they had forgotten is God is God of the mountains as much as Jerusalem. I can go there and I'll be fine if I'm doing it for God. God will take care of it. He says, go there and bring down that timber and build my house. You see, they'd forgotten it. The house belongs to him. Sometimes we forget. The church ultimately is Christ's. It's not yours and mine. We love the church, we should do, uh, it's wonderful, but ultimately it's Christ. And so therefore we're doing what we do, not just for you and me, when we're uh, in a community setting of, uh, as Christians, but we're doing what we do for Jesus Christ himself, who gave himself uh, for us. And that's the motivation. So um, God asks them why they haven't been getting on with it, but um, uh, it's a rhetorical question to some degree, because uh, we all struggle with this, don't we, from time to time, just getting our priorities straight. Matthew 6, 33, 34, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. All these things will be given to you as well. That fits so well with what's going on here in Haggai chapter one. 
Now, the final section to the chapter, verses 12 to 15, we see the response of Zerubbabel, Joshua, the whole remnant of the people. They obey and they set to work rebuilding the temple. It's a unanimous response. The leaders, the people, everybody, a joyful scenario. These remnant have gone from being these people. Remember earlier in the chapter, these people say they've gone from being these people to being the whole remnant. They've had an upgrade because of obedience, because of repentance, right? Repentance, sometimes we think of as a dirty word, as a, a, a negative thing, but actually it's the channel to joy because then God is able to work. Um, uh, as uh, somebody once wrote, Isaiah, Micah, and Zephaniah had spoken about a chastened, humble, obedient remnant that would return to be the people of Yahweh. Since these people have obeyed the voice of Yahweh and Haggai, they are now called the remnant. Now, we've got to be a little bit careful about remnant theology in the New Covenant, but nonetheless, people who, who had the capacity to be God's people were able, enabled to be truly God's people by their repentance, becoming that remnant. If we're going to see God work in the way that we believe he can, in our lifetimes where we live is going to come through times of periodic repentance leading to obedience then god's able to do his work it's amazing what god will do and can do uh, with those of us that uh, develop the humble heart that uh, that we need the lord sent haggai and the people recognized it and then they feared the lord in a positive way and they obeyed and and they got on with it i am with you he says isn't that wonderful I am with you. Verse 13. I am with you, declares the Lord. This is what they needed to hear because the work was going to be hard. After challenge and repentance comes encouragement from God. Of course, God is always with his people, but post-repentance, he's also with them in their work, their direction, their intention, and their desires. The reassurance here is very quick. Um, God is not churlish in his uh, generous support for their work. It's a reiteration of the promises to Moses from Exodus chapter 3, verse 12. God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Then we're going to worship God in that temple. He says, I am with you. Four short words, but they mean so much. And in this context, this is spoken to the priests, the governor, the populace, the political and the spiritual groups combined and full of joy as they work wonderfully, powerfully for God. So just some thoughts in conclusion for us to think about. The first is this. Some of you may be familiar with this, some perhaps not. But the Thames Valley aspirations, there are five aspirations we have. And we haven't spoken about for a while. But I think these are aspirations worth uh, working towards and building on and building towards. The first is in building a great church, G-R-E-A-T. And G stands for God-focused. We wish to be God-focused, not home-focused, ourselves-focused, but God-focused. We wish to be relationship-based. Again, not worrying about uh, things like our income or our clothing, but relationship-based. We want to enable our children to become Christians. We want to be always free, and these people were free, but spiritual in our choices, choosing what is best over even what is good. And fifthly, we wish to toil to build the church well. And it does take some toiling, that's for sure. So some things to think about, reflect on, pray about, and discuss would be about timing. How do you recognize God's timing as opposed to your own? How do you know when God's trying to get your attention and then have the courage and faith to act on something when God is bringing it to your attention? Secondly, um, are, you, are we perhaps at the moment missing something that's important to God in our own lives or in our locations, our family groups that God is trying to get our attention on? Are we missing something, something as obvious in a way as the temple was, but yet they were missing it? Is there something like that? 
Is there anything incomplete in your ministry right now, personally or as a group? Uh, how might you please God? What, what might be a simple decision that would help you to please God and then to also honor him? Simple things. Next time, we're going to go and look on to Haggai chapter 2, verses 1 to 9. If you haven't already read the book of Haggai, read it. It'll only take you a few minutes just to read the whole book all the way through. Why not read it and think about it? It's a wonderful and an amazing book. If you've got any comments or questions about this, then do send me uh, an email, malcolm at malcolmcox.org. Uh, the next class will come out in two weeks' time, and we'll do two more in October. Um, I recommend that you read the book of Haggai, think carefully about it, Let's give careful thought to our ways. Let's have courage because God is with us as we repent and as we work for him. And then there will be that great sense of community joy, a community joy that they experienced, governor, high priest, the remnant, working together for God's glory. Indeed, God then got, I'm sure, great pleasure from what they did, and he was honored. That'll do for this class. I hope you found it helpful. Let me know what you think. Until the next time, take care. Thank you.